This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Okay, you know what? Everybody does it. It's just like a regular nanny, except they come at night. I don't want a stranger in my house bonding with my newborn every night. It's like a Lifetime movie where the nanny tries to kill the family and the mom survives and she has to walk with a cane at the end. Right, well... So I checked IMDb. So far, no night nanny, but there is a nightmare nanny as well as nanny nightmare and also evil nanny. Nightmare Nanny, my number four horror film of all time. In that clip, Charlize Theron with Mark Duplass in Tully. Not a Lifetime movie or a horror movie, but a comedy of sorts. The third collaboration between screenwriter Diablo Cody and director Jason Reitman. They also made Juno and Young Adult. In Tully, Theron plays a mother of three who is gifted the services of a night nanny. (laughs) That was terrible. We've got a review of Tully, plus this week's top five Two real parenting moments. That and more. Don't worry, I'll take care of your children. Creepy. Ahead on film spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. So, Josh, we've done top five horse scenes without really knowing anything at all about horses. Have you ever even been on a horse? Speak for yourself. Oh, yeah? I've done many of those rides where, like, your horse's nose is in the horse's butt ahead of you because you're so close. It's not, it doesn't really count. Yeah. Once, though, once I was in Colorado and they took us out to like a long field mm-hmm. in the mountains and let us go. Exhilarating. Was it? Yeah. That's about the extent of my experience. My family vacation to Wyoming when I was, I don't know, maybe. 
third grade. Okay, so far so I'm good. I'm pretty sure they bought me a cowboy hat and some boots and put me on a horse. <laughs> I think there's a picture somewhere as evidence. And now we all want to see that picture. Well, the fact remains. We don't know a lot about horses, and we've done top five movie military leaders here on the show, despite never spending a night in any barracks. True. But we are bringing some real-world expertise to this week's top five, two real parenting moments. That's more our style. It is. So exciting. <laughs> Along with that top five, you'll have a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt in Massacre Theater. But first, I haven't changed a diaper in years, but Tully made it feel like it was yesterday. In our review, we'll consider whether or not that's a good thing. Your 20s are great. But then your 30s come around the corner like a garbage truck at 5 a.m. Girls kill. No, we don't. We might look like we're all better, but if you look close, we're covered in concealer. You're convinced that you're this failure, but you actually made your biggest dream come true. If you want to run off or something, I get that, because I want to do that too sometimes, but I'm not gonna. I'm here to help you with everything. You can't fix the parts without treating the whole. Yeah, no one's treated my whole in a really long time. <laughs> I know it's my turn, Adam, but you really should be doing the setup this week. You and Sarah, brave souls that you are, mm-hmm. have twice the parenting experience that Debbie and I do. That's true. Why do we only have two children as opposed to four like you? incredibly selfish. (laughs) Well, some might say that. (laughs) Tully is another answer. Another collaboration between star Charlize Theron, screenwriter Diablo Cody, and director Jason Reitman, who previously worked together on Young Adult, Tully tells the story of Marlo, a pregnant mother of two who becomes overwhelmed after giving birth to an unplanned third child. Sleep deprivation, juggling childcare and work, Baby monitors that torment you like Doctor Who Daleks. It's all here. When Marlo's brother gives her the gift of a night nanny, played by Mackenzie Davis, who will watch the newborn while Marlo gets some precious sleep, things take a turn for the better? If Tully is a comedy, it's a low-key one, and not necessarily cathartic. In fact, the movie is so honest about the challenges of parenthood that you could make the case it's closer to one of my favorite horror subgenres, parent paranoia. Keep in mind, Diablo Cody also wrote the Megan Fox horror flick, Jennifer's Body. Most parent paranoia movies like Tully deal with a mother's point of view, but I want to start our review by asking you a question, Adam, that has to do with the character of Drew, Marlowe's largely ineffectual husband played by Ron Livingston. Never mind Marlowe. The moms always get all the attention. (laughs) Does Tully do right by its dad? (laughs) Well, jokes aside, I mean, I know we don't want to dwell on the dad. This is a movie fundamentally about a woman, a wife, a mother, but... You're getting at something here because how it portrays her spouse is a crucial part of how we see her. And certainly that's at the core of one of the strengths of the movie for me, which is how determined Cody and Reitman are to get at what you said, the messy reality of having a baby and raising kids. And I saw a lot of myself in his character, Drew. I'm ashamed to admit it. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. I kept waiting for him in his defense to be depicted as a terrible husband and father, just all out awful, that's not the case, as it isn't with most of us out there. He loves his wife. He doesn't really know how to show it or how to truly be supportive, but he loves her. He loves his kids, and he's not an absent father, but he does work and travel a lot. He's not a disengaged father. He takes them to practice and helps them with their homework, but he has no problem escaping 
even when he's home and letting his wife do the heavy lifting. And there's at least one moment, and there are many actually throughout the film, but there's one moment with him in particular where I had that cringe of recognition where he has a quick choice to make, whether to engage or flip his headset back on and play his video Mm -hmm. game. And I'm not a gamer at all, but that's not the point. And flipping the headset back on is exactly what he does. It's not even a moment, as I recall it, that involves him having to do anything with his kids. I think it's actually a moment between them and it's about their own intimacy or lack thereof. But it's almost like he's a kid pausing to see if he can get away with just going back to what he was doing. Something that doesn't involve any expenditure of energy whatsoever, not intellectually or emotionally. And I'm even willing to believe, Josh, I'm going to give drew the benefit of the doubt that he even feels guilty about the choice if not in the moment later he'll feel guilty about it but it doesn't stop him and have i been that guy in some situations at home absolutely i have there's another one i'll give you which is a great scene one of those just real real scenes he comes home it's clearly been a long exhausting day for her she's sitting at the table the dinner table they're eating frozen pizza Mm -hmm. and they're all on their devices and he comes in and says hi and he doesn't outright say boy it's too bad you made them frozen pizza and there's not some better meal on the table but the fact that he comments on the frozen pizza at all passive aggressive you know what he's implying exactly and then he brings up the screen time i thought we were going to do something about the screen time and he points out that that was her idea he's not being the bad guy and i don't think he really is josh in that moment but it's just that inability to fully read the situation, to understand his own complicity just by his absence and by his lack of engagement, and to bring those two things up right there in that moment is such an indictment of her job as a mother. As I said, what he actually says isn't necessarily wrong. Okay, yeah, he, as a dad, is thinking about how much screen time to have, but boy, is he wrong. He just is so wrong in every way in that moment. And there are a lot of those types of scenes in this movie. Yeah, there's certainly some recognition there. For me, it, it's not gaming either, but hey, it might be turning on the NBA playoffs. You know, there, there's always something that you might be tempted to do instead of um, serving that role that you should be serving. Yeah. And there's a number of times in this movie where um, something involves Drew and I just, I just said, this guy, you know, it's just like, what is he doing? But you're also right. The movie doesn't play him as a villain. No. He, he's a dad who needs to do better. Yep. And that's much more recognizable. It's, a great way to put it's it. much more real, which this film is stuffed with um, elements like that. I, I do. I also like Livingston must have had like a, a bedhead stylist, particularly for him, because he's just constantly disheveled. Yeah, just a little disheveled. But, it, but it's not, you know, so is Theron in this film. But hers, you get a sense, is because of all the stuff she's trying to juggle. And his is just a state of being. Yes. Which is also frustrating about him. Absolutely. Um, But I'm glad you mentioned how it's evidence of their relationship as well, because that'll get us to what we should be talking about. That's Theron's performance. And I really like how the two of them together, again, he's not evil. And it's almost as if they've come to live with each other's faults and Mm -hmm. recognize them. And they're not bickering throughout this movie. As a matter of fact, there are moments of real support and tenderness. There's some off handed humor where, you know, they, they just talk about how things are crazy and right. they joke about it in a way that only people who have had three kids. And only those two people who have been through have those been through it. set of experiences exactly. together yes. can and, joke. And that is reflective of who Marlowe is and a comment that it's not in my notes that she makes at one point talking to Tully and saying how I'm, I'm mostly disappointed in myself. And 
I don't bring that up to say that she's right, that she's done anything wrong, but to reveal that that's how she carries herself. Mm-hmm. And this is why she doesn't go after Drew or, you know, blame him for what's going on is even when she should is because this woman is completely unhappy with where she's ended up in this moment and blames herself in an unhealthy way. And all of this domestic stuff that is recognizable that we see is good and relatable. But then this movie burrows into Marlowe's psychology, and that's where it gets very specific. It gets uh, troubling and scary and concerning. And these, I say this all is good things. I really like Tully. I yeah. thought it was, it was recognizable and, for me, as the dad, very revealing. Yeah. And – as you speak about psychology, I want to get to perception and some of the ways that Reitman and Cody, as a screenwriter, play with that. We will point out right here that if you've seen this movie or heard anything about it, all we're going to say is there is something worth diving into when it comes to the ending and spoiler territory. And we're going to get into that. If you're listening to the podcast, we will go ahead and discuss that, at least give it a few minutes. But otherwise, we're not going to we'll warn you before we're not we going to reveal anything until we get there. And yes, we will give you plenty of warning. One of the scenes that really stood out to me is early in the film stood out for this reason. I'm going to get to the perception idea, but also stood out in terms of it being all too real. It's the first scene where she's taking the kids to school. I think it's really the second scene effectively of the film and her son, Jonah, is in the seat right behind her. And she also has a daughter she's taking to school. She's very pregnant at this point. And it's just her in the car. And they are trying to find a parking spot. And the son, who the movie points out, they don't really have a diagnosis for. He has some behavior that isn't normal. They just say he's atypical. And otherwise, they don't really have a diagnosis. But he clearly gets very emotional and can get very excited and too worked up sometimes. And this is one of those moments where he gets fixated and he wants his mom to go to another parking lot. She knows it's full. She's just waiting for a car to pull out. She's going to find a spot in this lot. So he's kicking her chair. He's screaming. Then the sister starts screaming and the mom screaming. And it's just complete chaos in the car and it goes on it seems like three minutes it's probably no more than 30 seconds or maybe even 13 seconds but then reitman cuts quickly to the outside of the car and a shot from a distance looking down on the parking lot and from that vantage point it seems like serenity it's a visual joke and it's a funny one but i do think it gets at something else the chaos and turmoil that's going on inside that car the rest of the world is completely oblivious to it. And it's easy to be oblivious to a lot of chaos and turmoil happening inside other spaces that you're not in or don't want to look in or that's happening inside other people if you also don't want to look inside there. And the movie shows us the flip side of that as well is when the chaos erupts in public. And that's another level of stress for Marlowe. It's so funny that you bring up that scene. I stopped at a Target on my way here and in the checkout line was a mom with two kids, one relatively young in the stroller, another one, it was a double stroller, and the older one is recreating that scene except screaming about chocolate rather than a parking Mm -hmm. lot. And, you know, just the intensity that is created when you're in space with other people. There are scenes here of mothers or perhaps a grandmother in one moment judging Marlo's decisions uh, early on. Oh, that never happens. About her, you know, ordering something at a coffee shop while she's pregnant at this point still. And so, yeah, the movie does capture all of that. And Theron, you know, for this is a very physical performance that is in line with a lot of her work, not just altering her appearance as she's done in Monster, or you could argue even Mad Max Fury Road, but really the way she walks, the way she moves, even after 
Marlo has given birth. And so obviously her appearance changes there. But it's just the way she carries herself, this weariness and that stare, that thousand-yard stare mm-hmm. that I know I've had <laughs> when I'm deprived of sleep because of kids. And we know how much this movie is working on us. When Tully arrives on the scene, we should probably get to her and Mackenzie Davis, and by assisting Marlo, life begins to come back into those eyes. And Theron captures that. And what yes. a relief that is to see a little bit of glow coming back. And we realize how much she had drained out of her earlier in the film. Yeah, totally. And I think it's even that scene I was speaking of, the dinner scene with the frozen pizza, where she... Oh, she's just done. She's done. And I think someone, maybe her husband, points out that she's leaking or something. Her shirt is is wet. And she just takes it off. It's yeah, in that, that scene. That I think scene. she just You're takes right. it off and, and she's just wearing her bra at the table. But it gets at something fundamentally true, certainly, that I've recognized over the years of having four kids with my wife, which is at some point, as a woman, your body stops belonging to you. And, and, and it, it no longer is this thing that you see a certain way or that's, that's a private thing or that can be a sexy thing sometimes. It's just this thing that belongs seemingly to the world. And, and that's a moment where the movie, once again, gets something right. And I, I mentioned my wife briefly, and I'll just say that she could not be here. I'll brag about my wife. I'm sure you feel the same about yours, but couldn't be a more capable mother. Not only is Sarah just naturally inherently kind and compassionate and way more patient than me. She's a nurse midwife. So there's nothing about having a baby or raising a baby that's going to throw her for a loop or that she, she isn't aware of and, and doesn't understand. She gets it. But there were, at least two moments, at least that I know of, during the time where, you know, we were raising younger children, where I remember getting a phone call from the neighbor saying, Adam, your wife is at my door and she's in tears. Hmm. Like, again, she can handle anything. She doesn't flip out about anything and she understands children. But it can be so overwhelming that occasionally even the toughest people, the most knowledgeable people, the most in control people like my wife can have those moments I'm shocked it only happened twice, frankly, over a 10-year span. But, yeah, you get that call. You're not there. And it's like she's, she's just a wreck. She's a wreck. And, and she just needed to go somewhere else and have, have another human being who wasn't a child talk to her like she was a human being. And that movie, it made me think about moments like that and overall just how, how accurate <laughs> this movie is. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're making it sound like this is entirely dismal point of view that the movie offers. I think there's an honesty and a rawness that is good about it, but there's also moments that deliver a flip side when you're talking about um, a woman's body belonging mm-hmm. to the family at some point. Yep. Tully reframes that in another late night conversation they have where she talks about that connection between a mother and a newborn and how, yes, the new baby is outside of your body, but still intimately yeah. connected yeah. with Her you. DNA and re- is still yeah, inside you. And yeah. yeah. And how you're in a sense, you're still one body that's really kind of beautiful to think of it that way as well. So I think there are, you know, also little positive glimpses that the movie drops in here and there. So this isn't just a horror show. No. You know, that's why it's not no. it's not a parent paranoia piece. No, it really isn't. And I think that another bit of credit I'll give to both Cody and Reitman is there is some depth in that it could be that movie where it could not only be more of a horror movie, but it could be more of a comedy where yes. it's really about just turning those 
very real moments into very absurd moments and allowing us to laugh at them. And there is some humor in the film. But overall, I don't really see it that way. And I think that where we see some of the depth come through in the direction and the writing is in a scene that happens, what's seemingly a throwaway scene with Charlize Theron's brother, who's played by Mark Duplass. I think his name is Craig. And he and his wife are... They're right up against that cliche line, that that new kind of yuppie where they invite people over to dinner and the kids have their own separate meal and it's like arugula or something. I don't remember what it is, but yeah. it's a bunch of kale or something on a plate and, and Jonah, of course, there, is like – There's a babysitter there yeah. essentially. Oh, yeah, and there's another so babysitter that the there to take care of them. Talk, yeah. yeah, I mean things that probably – Middle class folks like us <laughs> laugh at a little bit, even though we It'd go, nice. I wish we had that. <laughs> we, of course, mock it and criticize it. They're also the kind of people we would mock and criticize for hiring a night nanny as if we weren't capable enough to take care of our kids. And we would let a stranger and all the things that Charlize Theron's character says in the movie. That is certainly how my wife would respond. And it's how I would respond. So they're right up against that line where you want to you want to hate them. You want to mock them. You also want to hate them because. All we hear about them is from the point of view of Marlo and Drew. Sure. And they're always talking about how much they don't like them. So when they're talking about going to that dinner, Drew says, well, your brother hates me and says that, well, I don't think he really respects me. So there's a scene later in the hospital. We've never seen the brother or sister-in-law except in a scene where they are with our main characters. Right. And then – in the hospital, after she's had the baby, the camera actually goes with them out into the hallway to the elevator, and we get to hear their conversation. And he actually brings up Craig. The brother brings up, well, Drew hates me. Drew hates me. Again, it's about this perception. They're just as insecure as Drew and Marlo are, and the rest of us are, frankly. And it turns out they genuinely do care about Marlo if we ever doubted that in any way. It isn't just about them. They really are looking out for her and her best interest. And they aren't the selfish jerks that they perceive them to be and we then perceive them to be. And as I said, I think perception is, even though it's grounded, their perception is grounded in some reality. It is nevertheless their perception and perception and point of view end up being quite important to this movie. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, you know, Craig even mentions at one point that uh, he references Marlowe's postpartum depression that previous, with her previous pregnancy. So there's absolutely genuine care going on there that's part of it. And it also, so would you, it sounds like you wouldn't do it. I got to ask, the night nanny option, you're past that point. But looking back, would you do it? It's just, it's a pure pure hypothetical because- Because Sarah won't even entertain the idea of one time. I'm not asking about her. I'm asking about okay, you. But, but I'm sorry. I don't know how it is in your house, but <laughs> she makes all the decisions. Would you, wa- would you want to do it? Um, yeah. Because you it's, it's, be in. it's absolutely reasonable and rational. <laughs> yeah. It is. As I have, explained. I have no moral objection. By the movie. I don't think it I can never get happen. past. I don't think I can pass the privacy thing. Yeah. I don't want someone creeping into my bedroom, even if they're going to help me out. <laughs> Anyway, I was just curious about that. So, okay, that does bring us to Tully herself. Does this movie need Tully? I was was so comfortable with all this good stuff we've been talking about. And and as a matter of fact, at at some point I was thinking, you know, there's something really nice about just being in the, yes, chaos, but also the boredom Mm. of this real family. um, And and then Tully comes in and the movie changes a little bit. It becomes positive in some good ways. An element of mystery comes into it. And I don't necessarily mean does the movie need Tully for where it eventually goes. But even for that middle section, um, 
was that a welcome presence to come into the film? Davis's performance, the character? Yeah, all of it. And it's hard to talk about maybe without getting into some spoilers, but I can't really imagine, I guess, what the movie would be without that breath of life coming into the film and if it really became i mean it would honestly be something like a darden brothers film if it really yeah, stayed right, right. in that just slice of life yeah mike lee maybe not the funny mike lee where things are really pretty bleak and dismal i think it needed that life and that energy that comes into the movie and i think it also needed it i think both performances are really really good because i think both davis and theron are playing these characters who could be absurdly comical they could be caricatures they never are in the movie they're playing opposite ends of certain spectrums. One is youthful and bursting with this energy and so hopeful as yeah. if the whole world is is just right there in front of her ready to be had. And of course, we know that Theron's character is the opposite. She's not only older and exhausted, but she's despairing. She's just completely worn down and weary in every way, not just physically, but emotionally and intellectually. And I think that they managed to bring all of that to those performances without going too far in either of those directions. And I also think that by having Tully's character enter the movie, the movie adds a little bit more depth in that we realize it's not just about her being an overly exhausted mom. It's this loss of overall identity. Yes. The, the fact that she used to be cool, or let's say maybe even for the sake of argument, she wasn't quote unquote cool. She at least had an identity that wasn't defined completely by other people, in this case, her family or her perception of how people see her. And there's another element too, Josh, in that I think totally reflects for her kind of what she could have been when when her life was was at a different stage, when she was younger like her and had the whole world in front of her. And that's something that's another universal longing. I think that's just another thing that as parents, we we not only think about how having children and the decision to have kids has taken over our lives and in some moments feels like maybe it's ruined it. But you start to think about the opportunities you may have lost. If you start to go down that path, that can be that sure. can be a dangerous one. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to describe Davis's performance because she easily could have been the flighty, quirky comic relief. And though there are some funny moments between them, it's not that at all. She has a brightness to her that uh, you know d- that can't be dimmed mm-hmm. because of her because of her youth, but also just her perspective on life in general, which of course is related to her youth. But I think Davis is really good here, and she also walks that line, a very careful line with what the movie needs this character to be. It's many things, let's just say, at once. And she manages to honor all of those responsibilities while still delivering us um, this real character that Marlowe can respond to in a one-to-one relationship as they become quite close. Mm-hmm. Are we done with the review proper? Yeah, maybe. anything else probably, you want to say? Yeah, it's probably a good point to segue into some spoiler territory. It's related okay. to these questions. Okay, let's stop there then properly. If you've seen Tully and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. If you've seen the movie and you want to keep listening and get into some spoiler talk, including specifically about the ending of the film and the revelation that comes at the end of the film, then hopefully... You are still listening to this. And Josh, I'll throw it to you and ask you maybe to briefly set up what does transpire? What do we ultimately learn about Tully just to set the table for the conversation? And then how did you feel about it? Sure. So basically, essentially in the final moments, it's clarified for sure that Marlowe has been imagining Tully this entire time and that Tully is, in essence, 
her younger self. Interesting choice of words. Clarified. Okay, that gets yeah. at another question I had, which okay. is, at what point did you get tuned on to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what I want to hear about from you as well. Um, but this means then that although we've seen all of these moments of Marlowe being refreshed and renewed and taking the cupcakes that Tully has made to school and doing all these super mom things, in reality, she's been staying up all night doing that herself. Mm-hmm. Um without being fully aware of it. And so the film climaxes with a complete mental collapse yes. because of exhaustion. And she's in the hospital, and this is where Drew comes back into the picture. He has, you know, this is like the biggest condemnation of him, I believe, that he hasn't recognized any of this going on. You know, he he just believes this night nanny has been coming in. He's never seen her because, as you mentioned, he's up playing video games at yeah. that point. Yeah, and we could we could debate this, and here maybe I'm, or, or debate the, the word choices a little bit, but maybe it's because... I unfortunately see a little too much of myself in Drew. It's another case where he's in denial. There's a state of denial, sure. but I don't think his behavior reflects anything that is is truly monstrous or someone who isn't doing the types of things that a lot of parents sure. or a lot of fathers do. It's obviously just a more heightened and more difficult scenario. It just yeah, and it reveals the extent of yes. the things he did not notice. I guess I'll put it that mm-hmm. way. So there is also a very interesting visual motif, a little magical realism throughout the film of shots of a mermaid swimming through the water, right. can't quite make her out. Uh, at one point, it's depicted as Marlowe's dream. Other points, it may seem more like a vision. And with that in the back of my head, and also these ethereal shots of the one of Marlowe just zonked out on the couch and her kids playing behind the curtains where you only see their silhouettes, and there's a little spookiness to that, but hmm. also something that suggests otherworldliness or just not taking place in this reality. So that's something that's in the back of my mind. I did at one point, probably three quarters of the way through, think, I wonder if she's making Tully up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't connect it with that this is her younger self, but that went away. Like this this is how good Davis and Theron are in their right. performances because the thought popped into my head and then the next couple of scenes of them together are so authentic that I was like, no, I, I, I'm wrong. So I wasn't shocked by the revelation, um, but I was surprised and I really kind of like it. Yeah, I like it too. And okay. unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read any of the dialogue going on out there around this film. I know from some headlines I've seen that there are a few people who don't like the choice the movie makes and I'm just guessing based on what I've seen again from headlines that there are some people who don't think it probably properly reflects the seriousness of her situation and and mental illness overall. And maybe it simplifies it too much. I don't know. Other people listening can write in either telling me what those arguments are or giving me your own arguments. I can't really tell you for sure what my experience would have been with this movie, what it should have been with this movie, if it hadn't been slightly ruined for me. Oh, no. Yeah, I got to blame a critic for it. And it's funny. I'm going to completely contradict myself because I think like you and like every critic I know, we bemoan just how much, especially on social media, people are overly sensitive about spoilers. Like it seems like, really, I get it. Can be. And yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people too. There's a reason why I don't even like to watch trailers. Yeah. I want to know nothing. No, I wouldn't listen to this show if I hadn't seen the movie first. I wouldn't. But... I do think people go too far sometimes in suggesting that, oh, you use that word and how dare you put that in my timeline or something like that. But this is like a week before the movie came out. I think New York and L.A. critics 
had seen it and were talking about it. And I wasn't even seeing a lot of comments about Tully. It's not like it was a tweet storm. Just one night I'm flipping through the timeline and I don't even remember who it was. But someone said something like they were negative on the film and they said something like, oh, I was kind of with Tully until the stupid third act twist. Mm, so you were you knew they just they just came out with it and said the word twist. Yeah. For me, that that is a spoiler. Like instantly when you say there's a twist, then I'm going to be hyper aware of that. Put your mind in that gear. And I'm going to be looking for it. And so, of course, I was looking for it. And since I was, I was maybe a little more keyed into some of the things that seemed like fantasy or that seemed like if there was going to be a twist, it would be of the Tyler Durden variety. Mm -hmm. That maybe she is Hmm. a reflection of her. She's imaginary. It's, It's all part of her psyche. And the moment that most stood out for me that that cemented it where i said okay i think this is what's going on is the one where and again we're in spoiler territory so i could say this it's the scene where they have a sexual escapade yeah with drew mm-hmm. where it's both of them she gets dressed up mckenzie davis Tully gets dressed up in this waitress outfit and they both go up together and we don't see it all play out but pleasure drew and I think that's a moment that should stand out for a lot of people because Tully's crossed a lot of lines that a lot of us would think, well, that would be weird for a night nanny to do. I don't know if I would go along with that. That's one where even in the most absurd of circumstances, no matter how close they are and no matter how sexually deprived she might be and Drew might be, that's one where you scratch your head a little bit. But it's also in the way it's shot. It's the way Charlize Theron is right behind her, literally right behind her yeah. on top of her husband saying, I'm going to tell you exactly it's what he likes. That's definitely the one, shot in retrospect. Yeah, it's the most as blatant. If that's what's going on. As if that's really Charlize Theron yes. there. But it's as if, to us, it's Tully who is doing most of the work. So that was the scene that really stood out. And I wonder if for me it would have been obvious to me. And that's where I really would have been aware of it had I not known about the T word going in. I'll nitpick a little bit and I'll tell you one thing. I don't like the fact that the reveal comes about through us hearing that her maiden name is Tully. Because, oh, but that's kind of confirmation, right? Didn't no, I you, get it. I get once it. Once she's rescued underwater, right? But what I'm getting at what is clarified for me is that, and I'm I'm questioning the realism of something that is obviously defying that a little bit in these yeah. moments and with some of the mermaid stuff. This is where the movie goes away from that hyper reality, and if you're Marlowe in these scenes and the night nanny comes over, and Part of the reality of the movie is us believing that Marlo believes she's really there. Mm-hmm. When she walks in and introduces herself with the name Tully, well, which is your maid. I'm sorry. It, it's her maiden name. She's not instantly going to question the ridiculousness no, but of I that. Think that's, I think that that's starts to fracture us, that a little bit for me. For me, it's putting us. And here's where I will defend the ending and say that I find it very serious if those are charges being leveled against yeah, the film I do that it, that it um, you know, lightens the reality of this situation is by her not responding to the name being Tully, it shows us how her mind is holding two things as reality at once. And how accurate that is to this Perhaps. experience, I am not a doctor, I can't say, I but, there, but there's a, you know, a level of, of denial and self-deception going on Absolutely. that that detail will allow for. And, and I'd really, believe a little bit more maybe, Josh, just if it was later in that, that whole breakdown, but, but early on. Yeah, but she's creating this character, no, and if she's she creating is. her to You're be right. her younger self, she would keep the name, especially because she now, presumably, I don't know if we hear this ever, but if she's taken on her husband's name, 
Uh, again, not sure if she has, but that is even more of a direct way to reclaim that younger identity. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is before you were someone I've else. given yeah. my literal name yeah. up. You Sarah know? and I so, joke all the time when we see something, anything that is addressed to her, we joke like, who is that? Yeah, exactly. We both make that joke about who yep. she doesn't exist, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. And, and, and you, can, you can see that. So you're right. I do get it. And yet there's a part of me that I feel like it all it all kind of is held together on her believing that this really is a separate presence. And I, I, I guess I felt like she would start to question too much too early. Wait, is this real? And, and there is a, a surreality to it right away when she comes in. Now, when you go back in retrospect, you you see all the things sure. that Marlo says, even like she knew just what to do. And it was so yeah. weird. And she came into it. No, she didn't. She didn't do any of that stuff. Yes. Of course, she knew exactly what to do because you're the one doing it. You know, I mean, that all then does come into view. Yeah, watching this a uh, second time, there'll probably be a lot of signifiers that that point to what we eventually come to know. And yeah, just to go back to the seriousness element, it, it really is one of the things I appreciate about the film is that uh, it leaves us with this devastating mental break. Again, right. can't speak to the medical consistencies, but to at least try to capture how devastating something like this might be for someone and the seriousness, the aftershocks it will have for this family, for the husband, for the kids. Uh, The movie was kind of like – it kind of speaks to what you were saying, how they don't ever play this for easy laughs. No. There's humor in the film, but there's an underlying seriousness to all of this that I feel that the twist ending actually respects. Yeah, I'm with you and – as I said, I'd love to read some counter arguments and I don't begrudge anyone a complete opposite take on that. But I felt the same way you did. I like the fact that the twist ultimately made real. There's that word again. This very intangible sort of ethereal thing, this this postpartum depression, yeah. something that's alluded to in the film. And it, it's it is an ungainly thing. It, it's something people don't know how to talk about. They they're not sure what words to use. It's unnatural. I I don't think anyone can wrap their head around the fact that, well, a mother should love their child. Okay, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes there are chemical reasons and there are very legitimate reasons why there are those kinds of breaks and And why people have that trouble. And this movie is making us aware of that in a way that I don't think some of us want to be fully aware of. And I think it honors that struggle, I guess, is at least is, is my experience of it. I agree. We would still love to know what you think. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So it's Adam's turn to be the funny voice guy when we play Massacre Theater next. Uh-oh. Then on to the film spotting top five. Two real parenting moments at the movies. I wore my t-shirt stained with spit up for the occasion. Stay with us. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast 
back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. Well, Josh, I'm not doing it alone. I can tell you that. <laughs> from the Fellowship of the Ring, that was Hugo Weaving as Elrond. Half-elven lord of Rivendell, son of Arwen Undamiel. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Actually, I have no idea if any of that's right or pronounced correctly. Yeah, right. Love these movies. I'm not that into it. Okay. Well, 2018, it seems, marks the 15th anniversary of Return of the King, the conclusion of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at least the the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. We thought, what better way to acknowledge that anniversary than to spend a beautiful spring weekend watching all three films? A beautiful spring, you mean, Adam. It will take all weekend <laughs> to watch those three films. But it turns out two of them, The Two Towers and Return of the King, I've never seen. Yes. And I do feel shame. some shame. I do feel some shame about it. So we're taking advantage of the anniversary and the fact that we have Film Spotting Madness, best of the 2000s, coming up next year. And at least one of these movies will be on it. They'll probably have to battle each other out to make it into the big dance. But at least one of them will be on there. It might be Return of the King. So clearly I should see it. And on top of it, there isn't an obvious new movie review Next week, we've been kicking around alternate options. I'm sure someone is now going to write in and ridicule us for not going with movie X. But as it sits right now, this is what we're doing if we can actually make time for all three movies. <laughs> it took a film spotting madness tie in for this to finally happen. I love probably. it. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so that is the plan for now to devote the entire episode. To the discussion of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Can't wait. I can't wait to see the download numbers for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> because I think it will be very revealing about just what portion of our audience cares at all. We'll find out. <laughs> we will find out. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share about those movies or any talking points, it is my turn to do the setup. And <laughs> it's certainly not my area of expertise. If someone wants to do the heavy lifting for me and send something our way, I'll take it. <laughs> You can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You could send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, or an email. Do you need a Middle Earth dictionary for that setup? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I do. I don't have one, but I'm sure it's out there. Yeah. If you go to filmspotting.net and click on events, you will very often find information about passes to Chicago area screenings. Again, filmspotting.net slash events. In the last couple of weeks, we've had a few different movies there. We've had passes for one of them. The screening of First Reform, the new film written and directed by Paul Schrader at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. This was a contest we had. Got some great question submissions. We even used two of them in our conversation with Mr. Schrader, which we are shelving until that movie comes out in a couple of weeks. But that interview has happened. And by all accounts, looking at some pictures online, getting some emails from some of the listeners who attended, it was a big success, including the Q&A that followed. Not surprised. Yeah, if you weren't there for that Q&A, do look forward to our interview with Schrader because we only talked for about a half hour, but man, we covered a lot. He had some great things to say, some background on the movie and, you know, his own experience as a film critic, which you could you could tell he still is, yes. right? At oh, heart. yeah, totally. That's where he started. And so, yeah, we'll hopefully have that for you in the next few weeks. Yeah, in the next few weeks. I would love to have a couple hours with him off air. Oh, yeah. And not sure. having not even the pressure of the mics and thinking about the audience and everything and just being able to pick his brain for a couple of hours would be 
incredible. We did have a quick note as well about the Film Spotting T-shirt design contest. I've been afraid to ask. I've been in denial. I don't know if any entries have come in yet. It's in collaboration with our merchandise partner, Tee Public. We're looking for designs inspired by our recent top five, Film Spotting's Avengers, Agnes the Seeker Varda, Matt Rational Man's Zolar Sights. You'll know... If one comes in and then is out there when Matt sues you for like intellectual property or something, it'll happen. (laughs) I should probably point out that if none of those names or superheroes overall move you, we're accepting any and all design ideas. Just design your favorite film spotting t shirt. We're going to pick one and it will be added to our storefront. The submission deadline is June 1st. For more details, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. That's where you can order one of the film spotting t shirts we currently offer or you can get Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings, which I, I like how you you just very swiftly managed to slide a copy over to Mr. Schrader. Yeah, gave him one, told him in case Seems it's a like long, be up his long alley. I, I think he might be into it. And also, if anyone wants to do a t-shirt design for the book, have at it. <laughs> yeah. Is there any Ozu, Brisson, or Dreyer in Movies Are Prayers? If the answer is no then I'm glad I didn't read the book because it's clearly not worth my time. So, okay, if you really want to get into this, there are not many because I tried not I to deal in too many explicitly religious films. I, I tried to go with, Whatever. Okay, but... Or you're just afraid to watch course, Ardette. One there's of the two. course. And, well, and because I hadn't seen Ardette, so clearly couldn't do it then. But there is, I believe, a reference to Alhazar Balthazar. And I didn't mention this to Mr. Schrader, but there are a few pages spent on Taxi Driver. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully he will read those and maybe we'll have him back on the show at some point. At our website is also where you will find the current film spotting poll. It has us asking you about Josh Brolin, the voice of Thanos in Infinity War. He will soon be heard and seen as Cable, the villain in Deadpool 2. Our question, Josh, was excluding the Coen brothers, no country for old men. What is Brolin's best performance? How is it going so far? It looks like there is a three-way fight for the top spot between Bigfoot Bjornsson, that's from Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, Eddie Mannix in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, and Matt Graver in Denis Villeneuve's Sicario. Kind of surprised by that last one. Apparently, they're all within 4% points of each other. That's true. Okay. I will point out that Bigfoot Bjornsson, right now, my choice, is in the lead, slight lead. The other two, Sicario and Hail Caesar... When I looked last, they were within one percentage point of each other. They were really battling it out for votes. So your vote does matter. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. The Goonies came up as the most popular answer for other brand. His performance as brand, I'm not really surprised there. Sarah and I, before Tully, we saw the trailer for Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado. And not surprisingly at all, Sarah turned to me and said, you don't have to take me. To <laughs> if there was a movie that was ever the exact opposite of everything Sarah wants in a movie, it's Sicario 2 Day of the Soldado. How'd she like Tully? I don't know. <laughs> Did you go your separate ways? We didn't talk about at it. The- <laughs> it's a really weird thing. No, Sarah is, <laughs> uh, she's different than Debbie okay, in that way. You know what? I'll ask her. Don't worry Please about it. Please do, because I'm actually kind of dying to know. And <laughs> I've sort afraid of, to ask I've her. Sort of, I love it. That kind of fits. I've I sort of deliberately, oh yeah. I tiptoed around it. It was like, I basically was like, so, you know, how much of that yeah. rang true? Yeah, exactly. And she liked it. Debbie liked it. I think Sarah liked it too, because if she didn't, she you would, would know let that. me know that. You would but know that. <laughs> we, we just don't, we don't go to movies. She so rarely even gets to go to movies, honestly, that we don't have 
hey, deep conversations. You, ha- you guys about have them. the it four kids, happen. Adam. I exactly. Mean, don't complain to me. Exactly. I knew you were going to ask me that, and I was going to be embarrassed to admit that I have no idea. We drove home in the car 15 minutes, talked about other things. We didn't talk about Tully. I'll get to the bottom of it. Okay. Wow. Do we want to mention this? I don't know if we want to mention this. On-air production meeting. Sam okay. wants us to mention this. All right. That we are kicking around what the next film spotting marathon could be. Yes. And we're certainly kicking around when that marathon could be. We don't know. We have two really good options, though, we think, that we are probably going to put to a listener vote. So we're just going to put this on your radar. It may be months away at this point. But we do think we're going to get to at least one other marathon this year. We'd really like to. And we have one option that I'm also a fan of that came from you. You want to go ahead and throw it out there? Claire Denis, who has been a film spotting marathon candidate for a long time now. I think possibly even before my time. We've each seen a handful of her films, but right now she's having a bit of a moment. Let the Sunshine In with Juliette Binoche is limited release around the country, I believe also on demand. And then possibly later this year, for sure next year, is the space movie High Life. Robert Pattinson. Yeah. So some interesting stuff right now and surely a rich career that we both need to become more familiar with. So that's option A. Yeah. A great pick because she's obviously a titan of international cinema. She is relevant right now in terms of the movies you mentioned. But also, I do kind of like the fact that the last time I glanced at her filmography, she only has, I think, 10 or 11 feature films. So if you do a five to six movie marathon, you really probably can get to the core of her work. In addition to the ones we've seen. Though we would have to cover some of that ground, I think, because... The three Denis films I've seen, two of them, I feel like I saw so long ago and not in the best of circumstances, I'll explain more in a second, that I feel like I really didn't see them. I would absolutely need to reckon with what a lot of people consider to be her masterpiece or at least her second best film, Beau Travail. Yeah, that That's was one my that introduction, so I'd and love then, to watch it again. 35 Shots of Rum is a movie I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival but had that kind of film festival experience with it where I respected it, I admired it, I didn't swoon for it, but I was watching it in the context of 20 other movies. So one or both of those, I think, would certainly have to be in this marathon if we go that route. But we might not go that route because instead, Sam and I are throwing into the conversation that we would love to do a 70s auteurs marathon, specifically focusing on the work of Hal Ashby and the guy we've been talking about, Paul Schrader, because other than seeing the films that he made with Scorsese, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, there's a bunch of his stuff from that time, Schrader's films, that come up, some briefly, some in more detail, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, Hardcore. There are films he's made as a director that are worth our time, and probably some others as a writer. And then Ashby, I did just watch the documentary, Hal, that played at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, and it's a really nice retrospective of his work. And I've obviously been aware of him. I've been aware of his influence. It does seem more and more that there are tons of young filmmakers out there that cite him as an influence, and it's because of movies like Being There, Shampoo, Coming Home, the two that I'm most familiar with, the only two I think I've seen, Harold and Maude, and The Last Detail. But both of those, again, 
saw them probably 20 years ago. I don't feel like I really truly know Harold and Maude or The Last Detail. I'd love to see both again. So there's enough to pull from there. Like I said, we might just throw them out and let you guys, the listeners, decide Claire Denis or the Schrader Ashby. Yeah, so another timely option there with Schrader Ashby and Harold and Maude. I just saw last year for the first time, and I think that might be the only one of his, so a blind spot for me. And wow, after First Reformed, there's a ton of Schrader I want to catch up with, though. Little teaser for the interview, again, interesting comments from him about hardcore. Not a fan. That he shared <laughs> Not a fan in our of interview. Film. That was really interesting. We do have a couple corrections from last week's show. We did our summer movie preview, our top five questions about the summer movie season. One of my questions, I knew someone was going to catch me on this. Even after doing extra research to not get caught, I got caught. I wondered if Topher Grace can play a menacing character. That was one of my questions surrounding the movie Black Klansman, the new one from Spike Lee that's coming out this summer. I did note his mostly reviled turn as Venom in Spider-Man 3. Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon, wrote in with another. He said he also played a great villain in the forgettable Predators movie. Wow, I, I'm the one, I'm the one like. who should be embarrassed here, Adam. Yeah, why didn't you all jump of, in there? All of the love I've given to Predators. The biggest fan of Predators there <laughs> the is. The show over the years, that slipped by me. Yeah. Also, Andrew pointed out that it's Walton Goggins, not Walter Goggins. That was my mistake. I referenced him when talking about one of my honorable mentions, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Not that I'm really excited to see that movie, but I'm curious how Goggins and Michelle Pfeiffer are used in that film. Goggins is the villain. And a lot of times, I'd say nine times out of ten, Josh, slip-ups like that are just that. They're slip-ups. They're just sort of slips of the tongue or you're thinking of another name and you know it's that. Somehow, despite how much I enjoyed his performance in The Hateful Eight, and I was aware of him before that, I know he's on HBO in that series with Danny McBride that I'm forgetting the name of off the top of my head, where they play rival administrators at a school. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think I fully had ever grasped the fact that his name was Walton Goggins. All right, you got it I think I just didn't know. It's in, locked in. But now I know. Also, Andrew adds... Love the call out to Goggins as I've enjoyed him from The Shield, Justified, and his cameo on Sons of Anarchy. Thank you, Andrew, for not mentioning the series on HBO that I can't think of the title of. He says he keeps getting villain roles in movies that are mostly bland, so here's hoping he gets something good. He's a bad guy in The Hateful Eight. Not too bland there, obviously, Andrew, but we take your point and we hope that he does have a fairly juicy role in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Vice principles, just so we're not doing this next week on the show. Just I had looked it up. I didn't know that. Another correction. We can't have that. We also heard from Jake Skubish in Madison, Wisconsin, who wrote in with some thoughts on my number one question of the movie season relating to Bo Burnham's movie, much acclaimed new movie, Eighth Grade. Hi, Adam and Josh. Just listened to your summer movie preview, and I was so excited to hear that Adam's number one question was about Bo Burnham's directorial debut, Eighth Grade. The answer to this question about whether a 27-year-old male comic can pull off the perspective of a struggling eighth grade girl, though, becomes much more obvious when you watch Burnham's stand-up specials. Make Happy is the best stand-up special I've ever seen because it's so much more than great stand-up. It's a searing critique of our generational need to be constantly entertained and to be performing online for everyone in our lives. Nobody understands millennial loneliness and the internet better than Burnham. And viewed through that lens, it seems much more likely that 8th grade will be a success. He doesn't have to know the perspective of an 8th grade girl, per se, because he understands the internet culture that defines her life. I would also recommend watching Burnham's previous special, What, Before Make Happy. It gives an important context to the expectations he ends up shattering in Make Happy. 
Both are on Netflix. So, Jake, thank you for your email because I got this at some point over the weekend. And even though I had scrolled through Netflix and I recently just watched a couple other stand-up specials, John Mulaney's two specials, The Comeback Kid and Kid Gorgeous at Radio City Music Hall, they're both fantastic Certainly recommended. I had seen Bo Burnham's Make Happy. And as I said during our top five last week, I knew who Bo Burnham was from his performance in The Big Sick. It's a supporting turn, doesn't get a whole lot to do. And as I may talk about with him, because I am going to talk to Bo Burnham here in a few days as we sit here recording right now, Josh, I had a perception of him based on that performance that really is not consistent at all with who he is, or at least who he is on stage. And because of Jake's email, I not only watched Make Happy, I also watched what? Though I watched them out of order. I started with Make Happy. And I'm okay with that. In fact, that's the way I would suggest it to you and anyone listening. Not that Jake's wrong. What obviously came first, and it in many ways sets up a lot of the the subject matter and the concepts he's wrestling with in Make Happy. But Make Happy is just so much more of a polished piece. It really feels like the culmination of his work, whereas what is him still working through some of that stuff, including what his onstage persona really is, that going back and watching that after Make Happy really did work for me. But Jake's right as well, that I do now have a much better sense of how he pulled off Eighth Grade, which again, at this point, I haven't seen, but it's a movie that's getting a lot of buzz and I am really eager to see it. My only fear, the only downside of me having gone down the Bo Burnham rabbit hole, Josh, is that now when I talk to him, I'm totally going to be fanboying out. Oh, that's all right. Go for I'll it. I'll try to try to keep it down. I'll try to ask him some halfway. I just hope you like questions. the movie. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> that would be your real problem. Otherwise, I'm just going to ask him about make happy the whole time. That that could happen. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. A couple weeks back, Josh and I massacred this scene. Come peace. I don't want any trouble. Dave? Well, I don't want to touch you right now, Paul. Just trying to Not do my now. job. Oh, oh, really? Well, now I can't do mine. We're already screwed up the amount of tips we got on this thing, and, and you've just freaked out the entire state. I've got Napa, Vallejo, and DOJ looking at me sideways, and Riverside's telling me I'm on a snipe hunt. Jesus, Sherry Jo Bates was a gift. I gave that to you. You and Armstrong never would have found This may not be Zodiac. Does that matter to you? Does it matter that Riverside may not be able to make a case against her suspect because of you? Tell to Sherwood, I'm out here beating the bushes, trying to draw him out. We're in this together. We're not in anything together, Paul, because I'm not interested in upping my circulation. Oh, boy. He wrote me. He threatened my life. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You gonna catch this fucking guy or not? That was Robert Downey Jr. as San Francisco Chronicle reporter Paul Avery and Mark Ruffalo as Detective David Bullet Toski in 2007 Zodiac. It was written by James Vanderbilt, adapted from the book by Robert Graysmith, who was played by Jake Gyllenhaal in the film, directed, of course, by David Fincher. The massacre part of the show featuring our review of Avengers Infinity War. We also did the film spotting's Avengers Top 5. And our listeners, as always, are here to go beneath the surface and turn up the connections. David Inman in Nashville started us off, among others, noting that Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo, of course, also star in Avengers Infinity War as Iron Man and the Hulk. Plus, last week, David points out, they captured the suspected Bay Area killer, who we shouldn't confuse with the Zodiac killer, but 
obviously a connection there. And that's true. That was very big news. Andre Cadeau from Charlottesville, Virginia, dug a little deeper. Jake Gyllenhaal is also in Zodiac. And even though he hasn't been in any Marvel movies, he was in Nightcrawler, which is the name of one of the many X-Men. The screenwriter for Zodiac is James Vanderbilt, who also wrote or co-wrote The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. That's about as deep as I'm willing to go. Well, Chad Camello in Evanston, Illinois, is willing to go even deeper. There are more actors in Zodiac who are connected to superhero cinema in Marvel and beyond. Brian Cox, who talks to the Zodiac killer on air as the psychologist Marvin Bell, was Stryker in 2002's X2, X-Men United, which remains one of the best superhero movies to date. Digging even deeper, veteran character actor Donald Logue, who plays a policeman in Zodiac, is in the TV show Gotham and was in the 2007 Nicolas Cage vehicle Ghost Rider, which is not one of the best superhero movies to date. And though Jake Gyllenhaal Hall has not yet played a superhero. I think his performance as Robert Graysmith in Zodiac would make him a great addition to film spotting's Avengers. His dogged determination with the Zodiac case might have ruined his marriage. It didn't solve the case, but his obsessive curiosity and investigative skills would make him a valuable asset for any mission. Impressive, Chad. But how about this from Mike Cahotis in Gilberts, Illinois, who notes these connections to other comic book adaptations as well as the connection to 90s film spotting madness winner Fargo. The man the movie posits was the Zodiac Killer was played by John Carroll Lynch, who was in Fargo. John Carroll Lynch also appeared in the TV series The Walking Dead, which is based on the comic book of the same name. Jake Gyllenhaal's sister Maggie was in The Dark Knight. Donal Logue was also in Blade. Dermot Mulroney voiced Green Lantern Hal Jordan in a Batman animated series. And Elias Coteus was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 3. Not 2, apparently. Holy cow. Once, <laughs> once you've reached the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles point of research, yeah. you've gone too far. Well, Mike rightfully points out that thanks to how many comics that have been adapted for film or TV, it's going to get to a point where everyone is going to have a role in one someday. We close with Jackson Garland in Hanoi, Vietnam. He puts the whole case in perspective. You think Avengers Infinity War is an ensemble film in which a wide array of disparate characters loosely band together for the common cause of stopping evil. Zodiac has it beat on every level, and it's a true story to boot. The resolution, or lack thereof, at the end of Avengers Infinity War feels cheap. The resolution, or lack thereof, at the end of Zodiac feels earned and is infinitely more chilling. Tell us how you really feel about Infinity War, but it's going up against Zodiac, which is an amazing film. So I understand Jackson's enthusiasm for it. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with all of those connections. Every single one of them we planned ahead of time. Of course we Mm -hmm. did. We spend most of our time on that, actually. Reach into the film spotting hat, Josh, fairly brimming, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Kevin Hills from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, who I believe is also a recent donor. Yeah, a recent donor to the show. Not that that influenced Yeah, I was going to say, is that way. how this works? The completely is this random picking something? out of the hat. But he did send a little bit of cash our way, and we appreciate that. Kevin, longtime listener and supporter of the show, please email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. We move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, one in which, going against his better judgment, our producer slash director, in this case, (laughs) Sam Van Halgren, has inexplicably cast me in the lead role. He he sees something in you that is right for this part, Adam. Yeah. I can't wait to see it, too. I just like it. At least hear it. I just like it because when it fails miserably, we can all blame him. 
and not me for the poor performance. Well, I don't know if that's the way I'm going to look at that. It's going to work that way. This is fun. I just get to sit back for once. You just get to sit back. You do the heavy lifting. No funny voices. No. Okay. There is a tie-in with a topic we're discussing on this week's show, and we will leave it at that. Josh, since I dominate this scene, I'm going to start it. You're going to have to give me the action. All right. Are you sure you're ready? No. Here we go. And action. (gasps) What's his name? Uh, uh, Junior. Till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. <gasps> oh, he's an angel. He's an angel straight from heaven. Now, honey, I had all my kids the hard way. You just got to tell me how you got this little angel. What did he do? Just fly straight down from heaven? Well, you're going to send him to Arizona State. <laughs> and scene. Wow. Sam has an eye. How was that shrieking? Did that, I shriek well enough? It was fantastic and more acting than you've done in the last 10 Massacre Theaters combined. <laughs> the last 10 years of Massacre Theater <laughs> combined. If you know what film we just massacred, and really, you better. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 21st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Up next is the film spotting version of What to Expect When You're Expecting. Our top five two real parenting moments at the movies is ahead. Stay with us. Don't see no sun. I cannot see anyone. Not until the day is done. I don't think you will understand. Wait for your speed away that end. Hi, this is Beth calling from Wilmette, and my suggestion for parenting moments is in the movie Parenthood, when Steve Martin is waiting to see if his son catches the ball, and he imagines if he does catch the ball, he's going to be the valedictorian at Princeton, and if he doesn't catch the ball, he's going to be at the top of a water tower with a submachine gun, and it purposely captures, like, how... You're only as happy as your most unhappy child. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Beth, for that voicemail and that perfect transition into our top five this week. Two real parenting moments. A lot of people on social media and email suggested a scene from Parenthood, which is a movie I haven't seen since it came out in the 80s. And what a quaint time that was back in 1989 when you could have a daydream vision like that of someone using a machine gun from a water tower. And that was kidding. That was quaint and that was funny. Certainly not as much anymore. But I do think that scene and the heart of that vision that he's having there gets at some of the material that probably both of us mind for this top five, those two real parenting moments in terms of the the fears and the concerns of 
being a father or mother. Josh, how did you approach your list? You know, when we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, how these are going to be so subjective because while at once these great moments we think of from these movies are universally recognizable, there are going to be other ones that speak directly to our personal experience. So I think there's a little bit of that in my list. Hopefully there are some that other people have also resonated with in their experiences. I went – so these are, you know – as opposed to a traditional top five of maybe, you know, leading up to the best, I put these a little bit in chronological order from the moment parenting be comes a reality until closer to the place where I'm at now. I've got a soon-to-be 16-year-old and a 12-year-old, so okay. I kind of move towards mm. that. I think that's just how I, 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 like I that. thought about it. Um, most of these are messy in the spirit of Tully. One is maybe more wistful or melancholy, okay. and then I do – and. I didn't, you know, want this to be completely a downer. So I end on a positive note. That's maybe a bit of a cheat, too. We'll see what you think when we get there. Well, for me, I am disappointed in my top five. I hate to start off a list like that. But I love some of my recent lists. Just get into it. You don't have to apologize for it. Well, I just think it's so rich. The material is so rich, and there are so many options. And that's actually the problem. Unlike a lot of lists, it is so subjective, and it's so personal, and so nuanced that it's not a case of just looking through the best movies about parenting of all time. Think about how many movies have been made that have parents and children in them. Sure. It doesn't have to be a movie that is about parenthood, like parenthood. In fact, I deliberately tried to go with movies that weren't. But any film that just has a moment that really strikes you as getting at the heart of what it means to be a parent is eligible. And I guess I fear, Josh, that I just overlooked. And I know I did. Sometimes you come and do a list and you know you're going to get one or two emails from people saying, how could you forget that? How could you forget that? And you're right. We just forgot them. Otherwise, we would have considered them. In this case, I know I'm forgetting a thousand options. And I guess that just disappoints me a little bit. But I'm going to do my best. We'll see what you did end up with. I put in a lot of thought to my picks. We'll see if it pays off. As long as you put the work in. I did. That's all I ask. At number five, I am going to start with a moment from before a baby is even on the scene, and it comes from 2009's Away We Go. This is an out-of-character work from director Sam Mendes, I'd say even more so than the Bond films he ended up making, because it's, it's pretty sweet and fairly positive in terms of its depiction of relationships. Now, this may be because it comes from a script by a married couple and parents, Dave Eggers and Vandela Vita. Their story centers on a somewhat aimless couple played by John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph who find out they're pregnant. Then the rest of the movie follows them on a road trip visiting friends and family to decide where they should raise their child. A lot of real moments are in this movie, but the one I'm picking for this list comes very early on when the enormity of bringing a life into the world begins to settle in. And Verona, the Maya Rudolph character, she wonders if they're even fit to be parents. But are we fuck-ups? No. What do you mean? I mean, we're 34. I'm 33. We don't even have this basic stuff figured out. Basic like how? Basic like how to live. Not fuck-ups. We have a cardboard window. We're not fuck-ups. I think we might be fuck-ups. We're not fuck-ups. There are certainly days you feel like that before the baby comes. Then there are days you feel like that when the baby comes. 
as the baby grows up, sometimes I still think I haven't learned a thing about parenting yet. And that's a feeling away we go captures so well. Great pick. A little bit of setup to how I approach my list, though overall it's just like you. I did ignore some really good choices that for me just didn't fit with that word that we probably used during our review of Tully earlier in the show and you just used, which is messiness. There had to be the messiness. So when someone like Tim Roggen on Twitter writes in, and so many people on Twitter help contribute to this list. I'm not going to be able to name them all, but thank you. Tim wrote in and said, from Knocked Up, the Harold Ramis, Seth Rogen lunch scene, so warm and supportive of a child, no matter how they act. And as I responded to him, so you mean the fantasy parenting (laughs) moments of how you'd like to think you are as a dad, but most of us probably aren't. That's not one I'm going to go with. Nell Minow, the writer and critic, wrote in with the great end scene, certainly discussed ad nauseum here on the show over the past six months, Call Me By Your Name. Yes. That's another one that there are elements of the too real there. Don't get me wrong, and we could dissect it even further. But another one for me that maybe feels a little bit more in that, that's how I'd love to perceive myself as a parent and as a father to be, but maybe I'm not quite as well equipped as Michael Stuhlbarg is It really was, though, about the messy moments where I see myself in the characters experiencing them. More specifically, I'm seeing my flaws as a parent. So for me, too real means that it did have to hit home. And in instances where maybe some of these choices aren't explicitly about my flaws, they are fundamentally about the existential dread of being a parent. They capture the weight of that dread. So with that, at number five, I have... A recent film from director Jeff Nichols, and it's not Take Shelter, which is my favorite Jeff Nichols film. And you could put on a list like this because so much of that movie is about the dread slash worry slash concern that that father has. Michael Shannon, the father, it is so overwhelming that he has these terrible visions and goes about creating a shelter for his family to live in for that storm that he thinks is coming like nothing they've ever seen. But there's not a lot of father-child scenes in that movie. It's another Jeff Nichols film, and the guys from In Session Film Podcast will be relieved to hear that I chose it. It's from near the end of Midnight Special. I won't get into too many of the plot details or try to spoil this scene too much for people who haven't seen it, but this is a kid, Alton, who has some special abilities. As happens in these types of films, there are various nefarious people, government agencies looking for him. The father, played again here by Michael Shannon, is trying to protect him and keep him out of their hands. And there is a moment near the end in the car together, as JD from In Session Film said on Twitter, the moment has forever changed me. That and the look Roy, the father, gives Alton as he leaves, those eyes will haunt me for the rest of my days. The exchange that Alton and Roy have, the son says, you don't have to worry about me. And he says, I like worrying about you. The kid says, You don't have to anymore. And Roy says, I'll always worry about you, Alton. That's the deal. We talked about it vaguely in our review of that movie at the time. It was one of my candidates for the most moving scene of the year at our 2016 rap party. The line and later that look. It's still one of my all-time favorite Michael Shannon screen moments just as an actor. And it's really just what he's doing there in that close-up. But this is one that doesn't require a lot of explanation. That is what you're signing up for. A lifetime of worry, of fear. Of course, it's magical, too. (laughs) There's magical moments, too, everybody. Keep saying that with every pick, Adam. (laughs) But 
it's a lifetime of worry and yeah. fear. And another one of my favorite movies of all time that did not make this list because it's in the penalty box, The World According to Garp, is one I thought about a lot because that is really at the core of that film. I just think about Garp, Robin Williams, looking at the family as they are at Cape Cod, I think, and the kids are playing in the water. And all he's thinking is, watch out for the undertow. Watch out for the undertow. It's this blissful moment. As a parent, you don't really get that bliss. You get the constant worry. And that moment for me was a really powerful one and a really truthful one. Yeah, Midnight Special is one of those you're describing that did not occur to me but is perfect. And I do remember we talked about that scene itself. Very much that film is is about fatherhood. Good pick. So for number four, well, being a horror fan, I knew I was going to have to pick something from that subgenre I mentioned during our Tully review of parental paranoia. I thought about Eraserhead, actually, because that's kind of like the fount for these type of movies. David Lynch's surreal, nightmarish. It's really a cinematic panic attack, right, about the prospect of having children. But I'm going to go with something a bit more realistic. Uh, The Babadook, Jennifer Kent's debut feature. really thought about this. Oh, I mean, that it eerily captures the dark side that any bone-weary parent can sometimes feel creeping up within. Uh, This movie centers on a single mother played by Essie Davis, whose husband has died a few years earlier. Her little boy, Noah Wiseman, suffers from these frequent night terrors, and that's left Amelia, the mother, it's just left her at a loss and short on sleep. Now, a creepy pop-up book that mother and son read together comes into play. It's about the title character, this specter who threatens to infiltrate and dominate your home. Still, though, the scariest moment in the film, despite you know the glimpses we get of this Babadook character, I think the scariest moment might be the least supernatural. And I know I've talked about this before on the show as well. At one point, Amelia, the mother, lies absolutely spent on her bed and her son comes in asking for supper, just demanding, you know, what a parent is supposed to reasonably provide. Her face, this shot that that Kent frames here, her face is in the foreground while his figure is in the background. And we're, we're so there with her in that moment, her size growing into this fury that builds really to a frightening Mm -hmm. outburst. This is an amazing performance from Davis. I mean, the way she's able to be empathetic or threatening at exactly the right moments, it was one of my favorite performances of that year. So until I had children, Adam, I stupidly thought that naps were for suckers in the week. Oh, God. (laughs) After a few weeks of waking up multiple times in a night to tend to the needs of an infant, I had learned to sleep while standing up in line at the DMV. It was like a superpower. (laughs) I suddenly had. So I know that bone weariness Mm -hmm. when I see it. And the Babadook knows it too. Mom, I took the pills, but I feel sick again. I need to eat something. I couldn't find any food in the fridge. You said to have them with food. I'm really hungry, Mum. Why do you have to keep talk, talk, talking? Don't you ever stop? I was just... I need to sleep. I'm sorry, Mummy. I was just really hungry. If you're that hungry, why don't you go and eat shit? A great segue, I think, into my number four, even though... If I Did wasn't, I mention parenting is magical? It's magical. Oh, okay. It's magic, Good. too. I, yeah, I, I know. I agree with you. Okay. I was already disillusioned with my list. Literally just now, just moments ago, I realized that my number four pick comes from a Pantheon movie. 
my whole list should just be disavowed. Disavowed. Uh, in in the name of getting home at some point and attempting to be a You're good parent, allow it. I will allow it. <laughs> in my defense, it's one of our more recent additions. It just oh, went yeah, in that last June, less than a year ago. What do you it got? slipped my mind. I'm going with a scene from Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. Oh, okay. It's a dinner table scene. And I have to be careful here as I describe this one. Is it because that dinner table it scene? Is, because especially as I get to my next two picks, I'm going to talk about just how personal these choices are, how much they hit home, as I said. And here I am going with a scene where a father rages in a way that I can tell you I never have. This isn't a case where there's a one-to-one correlation to reality for me as a father. It's a rough scene. Thankfully. Even if, Josh, let's admit it, way too many people do experience this type of rage from a parent regularly growing up. It is a scene with Brad Pitt as Mr. O'Brien. The whole family is sitting there, the three boys, Jessica Chastain, the mother. It's a gorgeous summer day, and it should be this serene family meal. The only person talking is the father. And Mr. O'Brien is just immediately laying down the law. He's dictating to everyone else the rules for this meal. And at times he's trying to be conversational. He's trying to show interest in what his kids are doing and seem like he's kind of caring. But he's really not. It's all about him. He's venting his frustrations. He's trying to impart these lessons to his kids. When one of them, the middle kid, says, be quiet. What did you say? He just lunges for the kid across the table. That awful pause. And all hell breaks loose. So, again, have never grabbed violently for my kids. I've never dragged them to other rooms while my wife was clutching the youngest to protect him. I can't relate to that. But what I can relate to is the sense as a father of trying to establish order, of trying to be an authority. In fact, kind of feeling like, That's the whole point of your role is to be that figure and to provide that order and failing miserably at it to the point where everyone else in the family might just turn against you. And the key moment for me is actually after all that chaos happens, he goes back to the table. Everyone else is scattered and it's just him. And he pulls everything back together and sets everything the way it should be and then tries to have the rest of his meal all by himself, tries to carry on as if nothing happened. Now, this is not the best example to try to connect to this, but just the other night, it was my first night. I think we joked on our last show about our kids both being of age to drive now. Yes, and right around the corner. Holden doesn't have his license yet. He's, he's still learning, still has a few more hours to go. This was my first drive with him without Sarah in the car. And all the other kids were with me. And I am not as patient as my wife. I tend to be a little bit more high-strung in these situations. I was determined to be the best father ever and just be totally understanding. And even if he screwed up a little bit, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I was just going to roll with it. I was going to yep. go with the flow, Josh. We literally start the drive. He, he turns, he goes the hundred yards down our street to turn left onto a four-lane road, a more major road. And he turns into the second lane, the second lane closest to us. On the other side of the yellow line. Oh, boy. With cars coming at us. Yeah. And, and they're, they're far enough off that we're not in a dangerous situation yet, but they're coming. And when I say, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, what do you mean, what am I doing? Oh, no. Like, it's not registering. Oh, it's no. not registering. So I, I got to lose it a little bit to get his attention. Now, 
little bit of parenting advice here. What my wife explains to me later is he, in those situations, is so stressed out that you have to just tell him what to do. It's not a learning situation where you're going, well, what should you be doing now? Are you aware of something wrong? You just need to say to him, Holden, you need to get another lane over. That's what you need to say. Of course, she's just far wiser than I am. And and that's good advice that I'll take to heart later if I ever ride with him again. (laughs) Because we went out for ice cream and we came back and we had even more situations where he made really bad choices and I didn't quite keep my composure as well as I would have liked. And you get home and every single person in the car hates me. (laughs) Every person in the car hates me. As we walk inside, Sophie says to me, you just made it worse, Dad. (laughs) Sophie give you some parenting advice? She likes to do that. So (laughs) I know a little bit of what it feels like to be Mr. O'Brien, who, let's be fair, is a person who loves his kids, who does think he's doing the right thing to raise them. And sometimes you're the only one who thinks you're doing the right thing. And that was me the other night. You had to ruin ice cream outings for the family yeah. forever. Yeah, now, probably. anytime you go out for ice cream, they're going to talk about this. <laughs> they might. They're going right. to remember it. I've thought about this. I've thought of this. There will be a time. Maybe it's at my funeral. Maybe it's just 15, 20 years from now. It's a wedding story 10 years from now. Someone's going to tell the story of the time daddy lost his cool going to get ice cream. I hope I'm there. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry. No, you shouldn't uh, But I am going to segue to a broad comedy, so maybe it's okay. I'm going to go for my number three pick with a Christmas story. Little throwaway scene almost, but it's bundling up for school. Oh, yeah. This is the comic montage uh, in the 1983 Bob Clark Gene Shepard Christmas classic. Everybody knows it. Here's where the mother, played by Melinda Dillon, bundles Ralphie's little brother in layer upon layer upon layer to make it to school in the winter weather. (laughs) Most of this is amusing physical comedy that you just have to see to appreciate, right? But I put it on, watching it again, I was like, oh, yeah, it's going on for this little moment at the end, Dylan's exasperated response Uh after she's finally got everything on the kid and he has a complaint. What is it? your arms down when you get to school at some point during a disastrous parenting day you just have to make the bad call and live with it (laughs) like she does there right just move along it's going to be somebody else's problem when they were little i sent my kids to school in weird outfits because i couldn't find the right items to match oh yeah just move along (laughs) i've made crappy school lunches I may have taken my youngest to a Mission Impossible film when she was way too young. You may have made frozen pizza and let them eat it while on their phones. <laughs> they survived. Uh-huh. A Christmas story reminds me that's okay. Yeah, such a good choice. And as you were talking, I was having terrible flashbacks, flashbacks. to being in third grade. And oh, my it mom, happened to you? Oh, my mom, despite the fact that it wasn't snowing and it wasn't even freezing, she thought it was cold enough that I should wear snow pants to school. <laughs> And I remember being made fun of for being the only dork wearing snow pants. The snow pants to school kid. on a day where it wasn't snowing. Can I get a picture of that alongside the picture of you on the horse in Wyoming? I can get you the horse picture. Can't promise. Okay. The snow pants. What's worse is if she made me wear the snow pants on the horse. On the horse. That Patty, didn't happen. Protection. You're right. She might just do that. My number three, two real parenting moment comes from my favorite film of last year. Lady Bird. And there are a lot of potential options. So many. A lot of people wrote in saying that you should go with 
the airport scene, which was a runner up, I think, for me as most moving moment of the year. And I'll be honest, when I was thinking about my criteria, I initially dismissed it because it was a case for me, like a lot of suggestions where it's a really powerful moment if not between a parent and child, involving a parent and a child. And the action is something parents universally don't even want to think about if you haven't faced it yet, your your baby leaving home. But it didn't seem quite messy enough. I was wondering, where's where's the flaw as a parent? And the more I thought about it, of course, there is a flaw. What heightens the emotional impact of that scene is Marion McPherson, sure. played by Laurie Metcalf, her stubbornness yeah, and her yeah, spite. Absolutely. So it works, but it's not the one that really prompted that sigh, and that exhale of recognition when I saw it. It's the scene shopping for dresses. Yeah. Now, I know I'm not the only parent out there who has been in a situation where you don't know whether to tell the truth or say what you think your kid wants to hear, and you're not comfortable with either option. You're really stuck. It's more than that, though. Watching that scene, it does make me reflect as a parent on just how much like Marianne I can be, how judgmental, how easy it is to be judgmental as a parent. Your hair doesn't look very good today. Your shoes aren't tied. You're wearing that outfit. Who sent you off to school in that outfit? And on, yeah, it's you, and on and on. And for me, when I really reflect on it, I justify it the exact same way she does. I just want them to be the best version of themselves. But you know what? If you're really honest with yourself, and I've thought about this a lot, the translation of that is, I just want them to be the best version of myself. I care about the reflection on me. I don't want the world judging me through my kids. And really, I'd prefer to think that I must be amazing because look how amazing my kids are. We do, like Mrs. McPherson, all love our children. But on that spectrum of like... (laughs) Where do you fall? What do you do when you feel like sometimes, I mean, honestly, I think all parents have to wrestle with this at some point, when you feel like you don't really have much in common with your kids. They're completely different people than you. You love them more than anything in the world. But in my case, for example, I have three boys and a daughter, and Sophie's the only one who's taken to the arts at all. Now, they're into to movies and all sorts of things, but Sophie's the only one who loves to go to the theater and wants to watch important movies and wants to think about the arts. So we have that in common and we can bond over that, not just as parent and child, but almost as friends, right? My three sons are not into any of the things that I'm into. I'm just saying, as we get older, I think that's going to continue to be something that we'll have to think about and we'll have to actively work against. We'll have to recognize that. And I think a lot of parents do at some point come face-to-face with that recognition. And that scene, maybe the only thing that's unrealistic that's too real about it is, at least in my family, we would never actually verbalize that. And I, I mean the family I grew up in, right? You would never actually say what everyone was thinking the way that Lady Bird does, but it makes sense in the context of Lady Bird that she would. So there's also a great shopping scene in the movie that comes earlier than the one you're talking about. I love when they're just going through the rack looking at dresses and they're at the – I forget which way it goes. I think they're – yeah, they're at the height of their bickering Mm -hmm. with each other and then instantly switch into bonding over – a dress they like. Yeah, because they both that, like it. Don't you just, just love it? That captures how it turned how it in families because turn. you have that level of communication and I think in good families foundation so that you know that underneath this bickering doesn't make it right, but that there's still love there. And so that enables you to suddenly turn because it's not so jarring for you. For those two people, for that mother and daughter, it's not that jarring. No. Like they have that closeness yes, they as do. well. So yeah, so many good moments in Lady Bird. A lot of great suggestions we got. 
uh, from listeners on social media for that one. My number two, however, is coming from Lost in Translation, the Does It Get Easier scene. Uh, This is that late night talk between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Begins with questions about happiness in general, but then meanders toward marriage and children. And I think because it starts that way, I wouldn't have immediately thought of this. But our production assistant, Andy Mitchell, brought it up. And I wanted to share what he emailed us. This scene really got to me back when I saw it in high school, especially when Bill Murray's character talks about how kids change everything about your life so thoroughly. And yet, here's the quote, they turn out to be the most delightful people you'll ever meet in your life. That's what Murray's character says. And he goes on, I remember I shared this scene with my parents while they were trying to impart their own wisdom on love and marriage. I was like, yeah, I know. I saw it in Lost in Translation. In response, my dad said something about how he and my mom had been trying to get these things in my head for years. But hey, kudos to Bill Murray and Sofia Coppola for the assist. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Nobody ever tells you that. Your life as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and and you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. So obviously this isn't a parenting moment itself, except watching it again You know, in a real way, Murray is doing some parenting here of Johansson Charlotte. I think that's one of the beautiful things about this mysterious relationship that they have throughout the film. And I also do love that description of getting to know your kids as they grow up. Delightful is exactly the right word for it. We both have, you know, kids in that aging out of the house range. And uh, I think on our best days, we're getting there with our kids where that that it, it speaks a little to how you're considering and looking ahead to your relationships with your kids too, mm-hmm. how it's going to change that we're getting there to that to that delightful element of a parent child relationship that that does happen as they get older. Yeah, that's one I look forward to revisiting as part of film spotting madness when we get into our best films of the 2000s. My number two, two real parenting moment. Yes, I realize I didn't go with the leaving for college scene from my favorite movie of 2017. I am going to go with my leaving for college scene from my favorite movie of 2014. It's Richard Linklater's Boyhood. What? Nothing. No, what is it? Nothing. Mom. This is the worst day of my life. What are you talking about? I knew this day was coming. I just, I didn't know you were going to be so fucking happy to be leaving. I mean, it's not that I'm that happy. What do you, what do you expect? You know what I'm realizing? My life is just gonna go like that. This series of milestones. Getting married, having kids, getting divorced. The time that we thought you were dyslexic when I taught you how to ride a bike. Getting divorced again, getting my master's degree, finally getting the job I wanted. Sending Samantha off to college, sending you off to college. You know what's next, huh? It's my fucking funeral. So I don't know if you're noticing a little pattern here following my ladybird choice, but going back to Marion McPherson, it's these moms in these moments exhibiting some of their own solipsism and selfishness. Not that 
either character is one that we would necessarily describe that way. I don't think of Patricia Arquette's mom character to be that at all. And Sam said something so brilliant the other day on the phone when we were talking about this list, and I was telling him about my Ladybird choice. He noted that it's one of the beautiful little aspects of the film that only we as the audience get to see how great of a person Lori Metcalf's mom is. Like we see her interactions with her coworkers and we see how she is as a nurse with that theater teacher who comes in. But Lady Bird never gets to see that. Right. She only sees her as a mom. In this moment that you just heard, it's this big moment for her son. It's him moving on to this next exciting phase of his life. And her focus is on what it means for her and really what it says about her and her life. And and she's lamenting that. And what it means is nothing in a way. She's done. He's about to embark on his series of milestones and hers are over. And that's a reality that, no, none of us really want to face. And I think we're all with children. We're destined to face it. That movie in that moment put that fear in a in a raw way that I had never thought about at all in those terms. Of course, I think about how I will miss my child, any of my children when they go off to college. And I've thought about what that says about me and my own mortality. I didn't really think about it in those specific terms. And that's that's really what is so magical about Linklater's film is the way it reveals those kind of details and those insights. Probably my favorite scene in that very good film, and and yeah, my number six option for this list, so I'm glad it's on yours. So my number one is something of an aspirational pick, okay? It's not so much a moment about the messiness of parenting that I've experienced, but maybe the best sort of parenting that I hope on my best days, I'm able to come close to pulling off. What's interesting here is that technically there's not a parent in this scene. It's Mahershala Ali's Juan giving Little, here played as a boy by Alex Hibbert, swimming lessons in Moonlight. Give me your head. Hey, let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you, I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey man, I got you. There you go. 10 seconds. That right there? We talked about this scene a number of times in 2016 when Barry Jenkins' film was one of the best of that year. So I've already discussed at length uh, the incredible sense of tenderness and peace that overwhelms the screen here. Beyond all that, though, the moment offers this lovely model of parenting, both literal and metaphorical, to be there for your kids or other kids who need you, to hold them up when they're scared, to let them try things on their own when they're ready, and to always be in the water should they start to flounder. It's not all dirty diapers and temper tantrums. I know our review of Tully maybe makes it sound like that in much of our lists. Moonlight here reminds us how beautiful parenting can be. So for that, and to end here on a bit of a positive note, to encourage myself, I'm giving it my number one slot. Okay, well, I love that choice, and I love that you ended with something positive because I'm not going to, though as a little sneak peek of our honorable mentions, it could have been a lot worse because I did consider the titular Sophie's Choice It decided not to go down that path. I also didn't think about the incredibly traumatic, harrowing scene in The Road, the John Hilko adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy novel, where the parent, Viggo Mortensen, has to make a similar choice. And I didn't think we all needed to end on that kind of 
terror and devastation. So hopefully this choice isn't quite as bad. This is my only non-recent film, a classic film at number one, The Bicycle Thief. Mm, and it's thought about this. the son's disappointment yeah. in The Bicycle Thief. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil all the details. I won't even get into the whole plot, though it's sparse. The movie takes place in post-World War II Rome. The father, Antonio, is trying to support his wife, his son, Bruno, and a small baby. They have, he gets a job, but it involves a bicycle. Let's just jump ahead and say he no longer has a bicycle. He still needs this job. And in a moment of desperation, decides to do something that he doesn't want to do, but that he thinks is the right thing for his family. He tries to get his son away from him so that his son won't see him do this thing, something that is illegal. The son doesn't go away. The son witnesses the entire event and the aftermath that he eventually does walk away from, if not physically scarred, he's, he's emotionally scarred, and so is his son. And the impact of that scene for me watching it again today is the realization that you'll do anything for your kids. You'll do anything for your family. But what if doing anything means not just breaking the law, but violating your own integrity or worse, your own sense of morality? And then in the process, you disappoint and disillusion the very people you're trying to provide for and protect. Beyond, remember what started this, that sense of near constant worry and fear as a parent that you have with your kids, the fear of someone or something hurting them, someone from the outside. What about the worry and fear that you might be the one who in some way is doing something to hurt them? Not physically, but you're doing something emotionally, something psychologically, something that's going to have a long-term impact and that's going to completely change your dynamic, not only as a parent, but the entire family dynamic that is what's so powerful, I think, about the end of The Bicycle Thief. Yeah, I rewatched that scene, too, in consideration for this list, and it is crushing. I mean, that's that's the experience of watching those final moments of, of that movie. So great pick there, number one. Don't be so hard on yourself, though. I don't okay. think I, – I, I have not seen your kids look at you. Like Bruno looks at his dad. No, I think no. You're, I think one you're okay. more, one more stint driving, we might be there. <laughs> Just don't take him out for ice cream this week. Yeah, exactly. Those are our top five two real parenting moments in movies. We'd love to hear your choices. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Are there any that were stragglers that you want to mention, Josh? Yeah. Well, I already mentioned that boyhood the patricia arquette scene would be my number six i also wanted to cite something that sam said talking about this list sam our producer and father of three himself he suggested the secret lives of dentists a very good 2002 film with hope davis and campbell scott as struggling parents sam wrote carrie reminded me of the scene when the entire family has the stomach flu both kids and mom and dad it's a scene that resonated with me at the time long before kids and of course we've actually been been there, done that at this point. I also considered Mean Girls and Amy Poehler's Cool Mom. We are at the point where high schoolers are hanging out at our house, and I really hope I'm not the cool dad. I try not to Oh, be. you're not. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. I wear my snow pants. That helps. Bill Murray trying to grab his awful, awful son in the backseat of the car while driving in Rushmore. Uh-huh. So good. And then, of course, finding Nemo. You know, Marlon watching Nemo head to school at the end. I distinctly remember having a slight twinge, I'll say, when preschool rolled around. I, was, I wasn't I was traumatized like Marlon. I was mostly okay with it. Um, you still get that twinge, but I was mostly okay with seeing them kind of 
start to become their own little people, which is, you know, that can only happen away from you. Hmm. A lot of good Pixar, a lot of good animated options. And like you, we tried to go against movies that are conventionally about parents and children. I think that Inside Out would probably be the most obvious of those or up there, but it's also the one that I would be most likely to pick a scene from. So I did think about Inside Out. Melissa Tamingo wrote in with a great scene, a great bit of dialogue and exchange between the two parents in your beloved Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, where all they've got, Walt, it's not enough. It's a great pairing with that Lost in Translation scene, not just because of Murray, but it's kind of the flip side of that, right? It's Mm -hmm. the despairing side of it. Tony Jordan on Twitter wrote in, I like this one because I never would have thought about it, when Samantha's father apologizes for missing her birthday in 16 Candles. And I do think there's something there. I think, obviously, it's a flaw of that father that getting caught up in his other daughter's, his oldest daughter's wedding He completely overlooked his other daughter's 16th birthday, and I just think as parents, sometimes there's too much apologizing. There's too much recognition of mishandling a situation and after the fact having to to try to make up for it. We'd all like to avoid that, but that's a moment in a movie that felt right to me. And I did wonder if there was a good candidate from a Noah Baumbach film, and I went to one of my favorite bits of dialogue in The Squid and the Whale, where Bernard is talking to Frank, and he says, Ivan is fine, but he's not a serious guy. He's a Philistine. And Frank says, what's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books and interesting films and things. Your brother's brother, Ned, is also a Philistine. And Frank says, then I'm a Philistine. He says, no, you're interested in books and things. Hmm. We want them to be in our image so badly. We want them, again, to reflect the best of us and that little bit of defiance in that kid. And, of course, then that that stubborn determination on the father's part to tell him, no, this is the person you're going to be. Just a little bit too real for me. Again, we'd love to hear your comments, even if, like my list, it turns into a therapy session. Do you feel better? Drop it on us. Are you encouraged? Feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives all in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll, The Best of Brolin. What is your favorite Josh Thanos Brolin performance? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got the next picture show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, I could give you a million guesses to try to just give me a one sentence plot synopsis of the movie Terminal with Margot Robbie and Simon Pegg and Mike Myers, I believe. And you would never hit on two assassins with a sinister mission, a fatally ill teacher, an enigmatic janitor and a waitress with a double life. I I didn't even get any action there. It's just about those characters. I I want to know who plays the enigmatic janitor. Yeah, me too. Out in wide release, breaking in. Gabrielle Union fights to protect her family during a home invasion. I saw the trailer for this during Saturday Night Live this past weekend, and it came in that slot sort of right after the opening monologue where often on SNL they'll play a joke commercial or a joke trailer of some Uh kind. Sarah and I both were watching it. Couldn't tell? We couldn't tell. Oh, boy. I I knew because it was Gabrielle Union. I was like, I think this is legit. But if you were watching it, you really might think it was an SNL parody. So... That's my recommendation for breaking in. Life of the Party also opening after her husband abruptly asks for a divorce. A middle-aged mother, Melissa McCarthy, returns to college in order to complete her degree. Directed by Ben Falcone, who I believe is her husband. That is correct. I don't want to like this movie, but I saw a trailer for it, and Melissa McCarthy made me laugh. 
Yeah, well, there's a there's a great if it's the same trailer, there's a great final laugh line in that trailer. I don't know if that's going to be <laughs> the best one in the movie. I always am rooting for her. Though. Yeah. Next week, Lord of the Rings. That's what we think we're doing. All of them. All of them. And the Hobbit movies. <laughs> I will run away. I will run away and never come back. <laughs> now I know what Join I can us. use when I get to Join that point. Join us in our journey as we review the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. Where, where are all those stories set, Adam? What's that place called? Um... Tol- I, I Tolkien said land. It. I said it earlier. Tolkien the- land, Middle Earth. Come Thank on. Thank you. I'm not that dense. Hey, <sighs> speaking of parents and kids, bonding moment with my sons. That's the only reason I'm doing this. Reading Lord of the Rings out loud to them at night? <laughs> Don't be absurd. <laughs> Watching these movies with them, that's as far as I'll go. Without having read the books first. Tolkien's not, it's just but not even allowed speaking in Speaking of a Philistine. <laughs> Guilty. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach new listeners. Our music this week is from Bat Fangs. It comes from the self-titled album. More information is at batfangs.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm going to go home and see my kids. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. terrible we've got a review of tully plus this week's top five two what you gonna do it again no 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 i'm not gonna do this though that's you're not no too much silliness <laughs> that's the best part i wanted to hear your creepy name I don't voice. Have one. <laughs> okay okay maybe, maybe i should do that instead of the terrible psycho yeah f- you should do you want to do one or the other I'll do, if bo- you do i'll do both and sam can pick which well we honestly can't we i gotta... think the creepy nanny voice is the way to go i mean okay yeah. So um, and that yeah. was ter- That was a terrible psycho. It really was. I don't even think people will know what it was. <laughs> they might not. Let's just do it without you doing the. Go horror. right through. Do a the. Br- I will exactly. Okay. Okay. Now I got to come up with my voice. Why? Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> that and more. Don't worry. I'll take care of your children. Creepy. Ahead on film spotting. <laughs> that was more of like a. <laughs> I don't know what that Eastern was. European either. witch, I think, than a British. <laughs> Maybe so. Nanny. Um. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.